Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman and Robin, Aquaman, Black Falcon, Samurai, Apache Chief. Together they form the world's greatest force of good ever assembled, dedicated to truth, peace, and justice for all mankind. These are the Man the of Screen. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 126 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo. This episode, I'm going to continue my run through the 1980s Super Friends shorts, the season that, according to the DC Universe app, calls A Dangerous Fate. This is going to cover weeks three and four, so that'll bring us halfway through the 1980 season. There were only eight half hours of new material produced in the 1980 season. There will be only eight half hours produced of new material in the 1981 season, and six in the season after that. So, short stories, less content, and it's going to make for shorter episodes on my end as we go through this uh, new format. So, before I get into this week's episode, I have feedback to address. I have feedback here from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen episode 115, which was... It was the first episode of Superman the Movie Month back in October. So, I'm really looking forward to getting into this letter. Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. Wonderful. I know how much you've been looking forward to covering Superman the Movie, and I have to say that you and your co-hosts... Brian Hughes and Patrick Delmore certainly did a fine job here discussing the first quarter of the movie. I particularly enjoyed Brian's reminiscence of seeing the movie in the theater with his dad and sister when it first came out. My experience was a little bit different because I was a quote-unquote grown man, almost 23 years old when the movie came out, so I'm sure it was even more powerful to see it as a kid, but I certainly thrilled to see it. Even though in the early part of the movie, it wasn't my Krypton, and later, not my Fortress of Solitude. Where's the Golden Door? Where's the giant key? I remember the ads leading up to the premiere of the movie saying, You will believe a man can fly. I never had difficulty believing that, but it was an unimaginable joy to see Christopher Reeve taking flight in that suit. He was as close to a living embodiment of of comic book Superman as I could have imagined, and I will always love his performance. Also, of course, the John Williams Amazing score will live on for generations as the inspirational and masterful gem it is. I loved the fanboy discussion when the three of you talk about whether Baby Kal-El, while on his years-long trip to Earth, eats, poops, and pees, and how it would have smelled when the Kents found him, and how Ma Kent would have dealt with all those blankets in that case. I also enjoyed the discussion of Kirk Allen, Noel Neal, and the little girl on the train. I remember when I first saw this in the theater, breaking into a huge smile when I recognized Kirk Allen and Noel Neal, even though it didn't occur to me at that point that the little girl was young Lois Lane. As for the comments on young Clark's high-water pants, there are two possible reasons for those, I think. The cancer may not have had enough money to spare to buy Clark new pants every time he had a growth spurt, and there's a bit of storytelling. Those pants may have been a visual shorthand for Clark is the oddball who doesn't fit in and is teased and bullied by the other kids. Finally, thank God for Glenn Ford's Pa Kent. That script and performance does justice to the character and provides motivation and inspiration for Superman himself. That is what I think young people should see. Thank you to Brian Hughes and Patrick Delmore for bringing us back to such great movie memories. I'm looking forward to all of October's coverage of Superman the movie. I hope you, and any fans who can, get to see the 40th anniversary showing of the movie in theaters in November. It really is a treat to see it on the big screen among fellow fans. Live long and prosper, Dave. All right, Dave, as always, thank you for writing in. Just a couple of comments on uh, Dave's letter here. First and foremost, thank you for uh, your compliments on the job that Brian, Pat, and I did on that first episode. Oh, it turned out to be six episodes of Superman in the movie, with the five episodes in the, uh, the October, and then the one I did with Haley in uh, December after I saw the 40th anniversary showing. But to pull back the curtain on the podcast a little bit, and, it, and that, this is especially no- notable in 
the fourth one that I did with Gene Hendricks and uh, Scott Gardner, where Scott had expressed that he was hopeful that there would be a uh, 40th anniversary showing. And these episodes may have come out in October, but they were, for the most part, all recorded over the summer. So 40th anniversary showing was announced after all those episodes were pretty much in the can. It's only due to the long hiatus that I took uh, after I had to move and after some other things had gone on that the uh, that I paused long enough that I could kind of make episode 120, I think it was, I could that I could make that into uh, the 40th anniversary showing that I went to with Haley. I could make that into a regular episode. If I was just kind of going, I would have been beyond Superman the movie and would have had to make it uh, a man of screen extra. And as far as uh, Dave's comment on uh, Brian's reminiscence of seeing the movie, that was one of the, th- especially having so many guests, that was one of the things I wanted to, I guess, collect so to speak, because I was born in 1980 after the premiere of Superman the movie. I have only seen, though I'm told I saw Superman 3 in the theaters, and then I know I remember seeing Superman 4. I wasn't around yet to see the first two, so I didn't have a Superman the movie premiere story, so to speak. So it was very cool to get some of the older podcasters on who lived through that and to, and to hear their stories. That was one of the things I enjoyed the most about doing those episodes. And something, one thing I came across on Facebook, uh, Trennis Magnus uh, posted something in his group about uh, Superman the movie. Basically, it's one of the things, that would be one of the things he'd never talk about, saying, uh, what am I supposed to say? Basically, he said, and hopefully Magnus doesn't get too upset about me reading this, but he says, seriously, what am I supposed to say about it that others haven't said millions of times and better than I ever could? I love the movie, don't get me wrong, but am I likely to find a new way to sing the praises of Reeve, Williams, Donna, or whatever or whatever else? And the one thing I want to say to Magnus, it's not about that. You know, I felt <laughs> the same way coming up to this, and this was on the heels of Superman the Movie Minute, which was done masterfully by uh, Chris Franklin and Rob Kelly over in the Fire and Water Network. If you uh, are a fan of Superman the movie, you really owe it to yourself to listen to them discuss the film five minutes at a time with uh, their various guests. One of the, But one of the things that I wanted to, like I said, collect with everybody's with everybody's origin story with the film. And even if you saw it, whether you saw it in the theaters or not, everybody has their story. So, I mean, I'm not telling Magnus to uh, do an episode on Superman the movie. I mean, he could, it's his show, he does, he does what he wants. You know, it's just true of any of our shows, but... And when I started Superman the movie, I was very conscious of my of this not becoming Superman the movie minute. And I found a format that worked for me with all the guests that I seemed to accumulate. But anything you have to say is fresh because you're saying. It's not about echoing what others have said. Everybody has their own unique perspective on this, and we all love it for different reasons, maybe. But Magnus, if you're listening, I don't know if you are, but... And I know this is something you've always been very conscious of, treading on what you feel is the ground of others, but anything you have to say about this movie or anything else is original because you said it. And Magnus would say it in his own Magnus way, so I can guarantee better or worse than what anybody else said, it's different. So if I have a point to this, it's don't not say something because others have said it better. If you got something to say, say it. Or don't say it. You know, it's totally up to you. And, uh, yeah, the fanboy discussion about how the blankets would smell. That's the one nice thing about podcasting with other people as opposed to doing the show by yourself. One thing is, I mean, honestly, I would never put somebody through my podcast every episode of the co-host. That would just be cruel and torturous. But you do have those little tangents where you talk about weird things with regards to the movie. I don't remember who brought that up, but 
I don't know, for some reason I want to say it was Brian, but I'm sure Pat and I contributed uh, quite handily to that. It's been a while since I've gone back and listened to that. As far as the train, which I believe this was the first incarnation of Superman stunt casting, I don't really want to call actors from the serial showing up in The Adventures of Superman really a stunt casting because, you know, the, the studio that made the show had its rotation of day players that came in uh, to be heavies and whatnot, so I never, I didn't make the connection immediately either that it was Lois Lane, probably not until, until I saw some kind of extended edition, and maybe this was just because I had watched the movie for years upon years in a pan and scan version and he was cut out. I never really noticed that it was Kirk Allen on the train with him. Perhaps Dave did in uh, in the theater in more of a widescreen viewing, but I didn't really notice it was Kirk Allen until... He, tell, he tells Lois to please read her book, and uh, and in that spat of dialogue, Noel Neal's character, which I assume is Ella Lane, calls her Lois Lane. So, But yeah, it was definitely Kirk Allen. He's, Kirk Allen got that distinctive voice. And in widescreen uh, ver- versions of the film, which is all you can get now, thank God, because of the uh, style of TVs, yeah, it's definite that you can definitely see Kirk, Kirk in the wide shot as opposed to what I saw for years upon years on the pan and scan version. And uh, yeah, everything that has to be said about Pa Kent, we said... The perfect Jonathan Kent, there was just enough of him in that movie to impart his wisdom. I mean, really, we only saw his first day with Clark and his last, but that was enough to get us where we needed to go. And that's pretty much all I got on Dave's letter. Thank you, Dave, for writing in. You want to write in? Manascreen at gmail.com. So now I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, and I'm going to come back with week three of the 1980s Super Friends shorts. Hang around, folks. Justice League International. Blah ha ha podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis will be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Dr. Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Adam. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort! And many, many more. Justice League International. Blah ha podcast. Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? All right, welcome back, folks. All the episodes in this segment had an original broadcast date of September 27th, 1980, and we're going to start with Yuna the Terrible. And all of our synopses are brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. When a group of archaeologists free a female warrior named Yuna from her Stonehenge prison, she starts trouble. At last, at last, I've awakened from my thousand years sleep. Now Yuna the Terrible shall reign again. Batman and Robin try to stop her, but she captures them. Wonder Woman and Apache Chief free them, and they put a stop to Yuna's reign of terror. Yuna and her warriors have entombed themselves in stone. That should be the last we see of them. But what if in the future someone accidentally releases them again? Don't worry, Robin. The super friends will still be around to take care of them. Alright, so straight up, this involves some kind of, I guess she's an alien or some kind of ancient power or something, stuck in Stonehenge. You know, there's been all kinds of uh, stories about Stonehenge over the years, but I believe there is some kind of conspiracy theory that links Stonehenge to aliens or something like that, but I'm sure that guy you see in that 
Facebook meme uh, knows all about that. So we got the scientist and his assist- assistant here that are messing with something at Stonehenge, and that's when they release Yuna the Terrible from her Stonehenge prison. And there was a sign that they warned them not to mess with Stonehenge. They messed with Stonehenge anyway, and out comes Yuna, and they're in a lot of trouble. And Yuna is doing supervillain things. She's terrorizing the scientists, and looks like they're her and her cohort are trying to make them into slaves. Batman and Robin go after Yuna, and they are very easily trapped in a force field. But Batman has a chance. He has the telescopic bat ring, which attaches to Robin's belt. You know, the buckle right above his tunic. Feel free to make your own jokes about this. They practically write themselves. So, back at the Hall of Justice, there is Superman, Wonder Woman, and the Apache Chief. The Chief recognizes Batman and Robin are in trouble, and he and Wonder Woman take off after them. Superman apparently does not care. So, Yuna is easily taking control over London. Her people have turned a tank into stone, and the soldiers have been run off. Now, Yuna is, you know, spouting the supervillain stuff. She is uh, monologuing, and she's not missing a chance to uh, make some kind of declaration, whether everybody's going to be our slaves, or they're going to be destroyed, or... You know, whatever you would expect a supervillain to scream out in this kind of situation, Yuna is screaming it out. So Apache Chief grows to a huge size and grabs Yuna, but she hypnotizes the Chief into doing what she wants. Great. So much for him. This leaves only Wonder Woman free and Superman having lunch or something. Wonder Woman tries to free Batman and Robin, but she gets an electric shock for her trouble. You know, again, she showed off her great roping abilities, but I guess the Apache Chief is better at it as Wonder Woman ends up roped. Apache Chief is under Yuna's power at this point, so he kind of just turns the rope back on Wonder Woman. This story is nothing we haven't seen before, and to be honest, it gets tiresome after a while. I mean, some people like these kinds of villains uh, being villains, but, you know, the -the over-the-topness just gets old after a while. So we've got now we've got some kind of duel as uh, Yuna and Wonder Woman are going to have a tug of war over a pit with two panthers in it. And while this is going on, I'm suddenly wondering what's going to happen with the bat telescopic ring. Well, you know the one that uh, Batman attached to Robin's belt buckle. At the uh, tug of war, Wonder Woman was about to win when one of Yuna's men decided it was time to cheat. Typical villain that can't win in a fair fight has to cheat in order to gain her victory over the hero. So now, the Apache Chief shakes off the spell and he rescues Wonder Woman and Batman and Robin. Now, this is where things get a little hinky. Batman will fly in this episode. Kind of. He gets a running start, jumps onto Robin's hand as if Robin's going to give him a boost, which he does. But apparently, this gives Batman enough of a boost to, for all intents and purposes, make him fly. And he looks exactly like Superman does when Superman is flying, with arms out and uh, staying extremely level for a character that is not gifted with the ability of flight. Now, Batman can use his cape to glide, We've seen that plenty in the live-action film and the Arkham Asylum games, but there is no indication of that happening here. It looks as though he's flying, and he grabs a bunch of henchmen and drops them without losing any altitude. Just the having henchmen in his hand should have brought him crashing back down to the ground, but it doesn't. Somehow. So, apparently once she's caught and realizes she can't win, Yuna decides the best alternative is to go back into Stonehenge and wait for a time when the super friends are no longer around. You know, the classic acting out of uh, she who uh, fights and runs away lives to fight another day, or another century. Maybe she'll hang out in Stonehenge for another thousand years. If the uh, Legion of Superheroes are around in a thousand years, they'll have to worry about her then. So, fortunately now, we have a 200-foot Apache chief picking up Robin, so the boy Wonder can stand on his hand, so he can adult-splain to the boy Wonder that he won't come back while the Super Friends are around. Whether the Super Friends are going to be around for the next 1,000 years is anyone's guess, but the, the Apache chief seems to think that they're going to be. So, whew. glad that one's done, but to be honest, the next one is even worse. So let's go into the Rock and Roll Space Bandits. Yeah. And our synopsis is as follows. 
A group of space musicians paralyze the super friends in space. This looks like the perfect place for our first earthly performance. One, two, one, two, three, four. Jupiters, those alien musicians are hypnotizing people with their music. This is a job for the Wonder Twins. You're right, Gleek. It just doesn't sound the same as when Superman says it. And hypnotize the people of Metropolis with their strange music. Your plan is working perfectly, Vivo. Yes, now that the Super Friends are out of the way, we can control the Earth with our hypnotic music. Soon the entire universe will dance to the music of the rock and roll Space Bandits. <laughs> the Wonder Twins are hypnotized to walk off of the ledge of a high-rise building, but Superman and the others save them, and everyone else from the musicians. I never thought I could be scared of a little music. Oh, that was nothing, Jaina. I knew we had them handled from the start. It's them! The Space Bandits are back! Relax, Zan! It's only rock and roll glee! Yeah, that synopsis pretty much gives you everything you need to know about this episode. So we start with Superman in pursuit of a spaceship, and it attacks him with music. And right off the bat, I can see this episode is off to a great start. And now Batman and Robin are felled by music as well. And then Wonder Woman. And the hits just keep coming. Oh, I can't believe I just said that. So, these three aliens are going to, are going to take over the world with music. Uh, you know, your mother warned you about that rock and roll. And it's nice to know that the uh, Justice League computer can sense when the Super Friends are in trouble, as it warns Zan and Jaina. If the whole Justice League can't stand up to these musicians, I don't know what makes the computer think the Wonder Twins can, but there that is. So here is a ship landing in the middle of Metropolis. We've got some strange-looking rockers that are jamming right in the middle of downtown, kind of sending a bozo rays of light into the minds of the crowd that's gathered. <laughs> yeah, I said bozo rays. This episode is, is taking me right off the rails here. Oh, it's horrible. So the crash hypnotized, and Jaina and Zan are watching, and Jaina declares that this is the job for the Wonder Twins. I nearly closed my web browser at that point. Or maybe I wanted to go lie down because I thought I was entering into a fever dream, and not a very good one. But Gleek is not having it, and I'm glad she realizes that it only works for Superman, not her. And we've seen how jobs for the Wonder Twins normally turn out. You know, just ask that old man and the grandson from last week. You know, the uh, remember the where she turned where she turned into the snake and the Zan the uh, ice crane, and they almost dropped the car before Wonder Woman picked it up in her. So for once, I agree with Gleek. So Jaina is going to become a giant lobster, and Zan is going to become an icy satellite dish. And Jaina reflects the rays back at the uh, Super Space Bandits, and they're getting the people to take care of the twins. And now the twins take their normal form as they're hypnotized as well. And this is when I'm starting to get a sense of trepidation that the resolution to this episode might be up to Gleek. And nothing should terrify you more than that. But Wonder Woman, uh... Is gonna join in, and uh, she's gonna vibrate her lasso to uh, open the force field holding her. Insert vibration joke there. And she's gonna free not only herself, but Superman, Batman, and Robin. Now, it's a good thing Batman has the Justice League Sonic earplugs. I guess Superman and Wonder Woman have them too, because then they would be the Bat earplugs, because, you know, branding. Superman plugs the twins' ears, and they're okay too, so apparently even the band knew who the Super Friends are. And here we go again. Music is literally bringing down the house. It kind of reminds me of the, uh, in the 90s, the second season episode, Lois and Clark, where, uh, the wall of sound where the villain plays, uh, really loud music to knock the destroy Metropolis. 
Same thing here. But the band knows who the super friends are, and the Justice League is immune to the effects of the music because they've got the Justice League Sonic earplugs. And that during the quake, the uh, cartoon's colorist managed to invert Batman's bat symbol again. That happens quite a bit. Instead of the usual black bat on the yellow, it's a yellow bat on the black. Which, you see that so much that I'm starting to get used to it and starting to even like it a little bit. Must be, must be what being held hostage is like. In this case, hostage to bad coloring. So I like seeing Superman uh, rebuild the building at super speed and not using his eyes. And then Batman turns on the... Uh, the bat sound absorber on the bat plane. Not everyone has one of these, so that's why it's the bat sound absorber, not the Justice League sound absorber. And when the Batman turns it on, the music abruptly stopped, and just about so did the audio in all of this episode. I've mentioned before, I watched this on the DC Universe app, and I nearly checked my computer to, uh, to see if the internet service had gone out, because it was so stark, the sound going out, that... I thought the video had started buffering or something, but it didn't. And as I was trying to figure out what was going on, the episode, res- I don't want to say it resumed because it never stopped, but the audio came back. And obviously that was part of the production of the episode. Maybe they could have done something that wasn't a little so jarring, but they're just kind of slamming down the mute button in an alarming fashion. But immediately after that, Superman puts the band in the spaceship, so everything was okay. Everything was fixed. Superman picks up the ship and sends them into space. And then we get our ending. Zan says, this was nothing. And then he panics when he hears music, thinking that the band is back. Turns out, it's Glee on guitar doing a tune. Yeah, I was right. Definitely worse. Now we're going to ride the elevator to nowhere. And our Superman homepage synopsis is as follows. A Dr. Wells uses Wonder Woman and the Atom to test his invention. Dr. Wells! Dr. Wells! Welcome, super friends. I'm glad you could make it. No problem, Doctor. But do you mind telling us what was so urgent that we had to get down here in the middle of the night? Of course, Adam. But I'd prefer to tell you in person. This elevator will take you to my top-secret underground lab. There's something wrong with these buttons. We're not going down. There's nothing wrong with the buttons, Wonder Woman. You're not going down because this isn't an elevator. It's my top secret time machine. (laughs) I've decided that you two will test it for me. Why should I risk my life when I can risk yours? (laughs) Nice try, Wells, but your plan will never work. With my subatomic strength, I'll rip open this elevator as if it were tinfoil. Don't waste your time, Adam. I've got everything. Those elevator walls are six-inch-thick magna steel. One of these buttons must open the door. Thank you for activating the time machine, Wonder Woman. You've just set the controls for the year 1776. And then to be the pirate. Your time machine was a brilliant invention, Dr. Wells. But if it's not put to good use, an invention isn't worth a thing. And speaking of time, I'm afraid you may be doing a little time at the federal prison. This episode is going to heavily feature Wonder Woman and the Atom, and nobody else. And we haven't seen him since, I don't know when. I don't think we saw the Atom at all during the Challenge of the Super Friends episode. I know we saw him during Season 2, the all-new Super Friends Hour. And now this is, for lack of a better term, Season 5, so... It's been quite a few years since we've seen the Atom on the Super Friends. So, they're going to meet one Dr. Wells, and not Dr. Harrison Wells from the Flash TV show, in case you were wondering. But Wonder Woman and Adam are trapped in an elevator, 
but it's not an elevator. It's a time machine, which is far more interesting than an elevator. If I'm going to get stuck in something, I'd rather get stuck in a time machine than an elevator, I think. Maybe I just don't want to be stuck in anything. Well, anyway, moving on. <laughs> Maybe I just don't want to get stuck, period. Apparently, Dr. Wells is not going to risk his life on his own invention, trying to travel through time. Instead, he's going to bother Wonder Woman and the Atom, and he's going to trap them and trick them. My question is, why couldn't he send a rat or something back through time? But that's neither here nor there. I don't understand why he needs to uh, bother uh, Wonder Woman and the Atom with this. So, Adam and Wonder Woman are trapped, and uh, Adam can't get out because of the molecular makeup of the uh, elevator that they're in. Wonder Woman hits some buttons by accident, and she sends herself and Adam to, to 1776. And they're in Trenton, New Jersey, where they find George Washington crossing the Delaware. So, it's Christmas night in 1776. That is when uh, Washington crossed the Delaware for the first time. Just a little historical note, this was the first move in a surprise attack organized by Washington and against the Hessian forces in Trenton. It was planned in partial secrecy, and Washington led a column of Continental Army troops across the Delaware in a dangerous operation. There were other planned crossings in support of this operation that were either called off or ineffective, but this did not prevent Washington from surprising and defeating the troops of Johann Rahl who was quartered in Trenton at the time. The army crossed the river again to go back to Pennsylvania, and they were full of prisoners and military stores that they took as a result of the battle. So, there we go. This is what uh, we're witnessing here. So, now back to the show. And this is that's a little bit of historical note about what we're witnessing. So, Wonder Woman and Adam are captured by the Continental Army, and George Washington uh, arrests Wonder Woman for, her, for treason based on her outfit, because the stars and the uh, eagles look very British for how much of a costume that Wonder Woman actually wears. So, Adam grabs one of the soldiers and puts him in a tree, and Wonder Woman ropes another. But they get away, but not before Adam gives Washington a pep talk about being a great president. But the the father of our country is just confused. So, now they travel through time again, and Wonder Woman spins for some reason. I don't know why Wonder Woman is spinning during time travel, but she does. They're in a time machine, so you would think spinning would be unnecessary. Maybe the time machine spins around, I don't know. But here we go, this pirate is Blackbeard, and he does not get roped by Wonder Woman, but he does manage to put the atom in a jar. In case you ever wanted a jar of superhero, now now Blackbeard has one. And all the while, the machine is sinking. But they get away, they run into the machine before it sinks, and they're gone. You know, this episode might have been a lot more fun if it was longer. They could spend a little more time in each time period. I could easily see this as... If you're going with this seven-minute format, I can definitely see this as being like a three-part episode. You know, you spend seven minutes with George Washington, seven minutes with Blackbeard, and seven minutes with the uh, with the final segment. This is just a lot to cram in in seven minutes, and it really hurts this story because there's not a lot of time to spend in each time period. If you're going to go to the Revolutionary War and to Blackbeard, you want to see a little bit, but not just kind of a hit and run. So this is going to be Adam's show, and he's going to have to find a way to program the machine and take them back to the present. So Adam figures it out, and they go home. So now Dr. Wells tries to get away in the time machine, and I have no idea what his motive is for being so evil. If he just asked them to help test his machine, I'm sure they would have. He didn't need to go through all these machinations. Again, he could have sent a lab rat, you know, and, and find a way to bring it back. But nope, he decided to experiment with Super Friends, and it's going to cost him. So they now they end up back in the age of the dinosaurs. Adam stops the machine from going, but Dr. Wells is grabbed by a T-Rex. You know, they're in the land of the dinosaurs. Who didn't see them being grabbed? Who didn't see somebody being grabbed by a T-Rex? So Wonder Woman will muzzle the T-Rex with her lasso, saves Wells, they go home. Yay. Again, this episode could have uh, been much better if it was the full 22 minutes. All it was reduced to to fit into a seven-minute time slot was basically to get where they're going, see where they are, then run away. And being that that had to happen three times, eh. It's kind of redundant. Why they didn't think of an episode like this during the World's Greatest Super Friends season. This 
could have been a very fun episode for 22 minutes. But that was the last episode for this week of Showtime, not for this week as a podcast episode. But that was the best of the three. I really enjoyed that one, even though it could have been better by decom- basically if it was decompressed. So right now I'm going to take a quick break, play another promo. Then I'm going to come back to wrap things up with the uh, fourth week of the 1980 fall season. Hang around, folks. Are you willing to follow me on a journey and risk getting lost in a swirling maze of past ages, protected only by our red indestructible capes as we break through the final unexplored realm of the time barrier to explore the fantastic Silver Age adventures of the world's greatest hero, Superman? If so, join me each week on the Superman Fan Podcast as together we'll follow the Man of Steel, his cousin Supergirl, and his closest friends, Perry White, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, Lana Lang, Batman and Robin, and others in Superman's never-ending quest to defend truth and justice in the pages of Action Comics, Superman, World's Finest Comics, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, and Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. Go to the supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com, available on iTunes and most other podcast aggregators, you can also follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Medium, Flipboard, and Stitcher. And after you listen, feel free to send email to supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. And unless you request otherwise, I look forward to reading your comments on future episodes. And don't forget to wear your red indestructible cape, standard safety equipment for traveling through the time barrier. All right, welcome back, folks. All the episodes of this segment had an original broadcast date of October 4th, 1980. And we're going to start with One Small Step for Mars. And all of our synopses are brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. After Superman and Green Lantern save Metropolis from an earthquake, they have to meet a trio of escaped Martian prisoners. I think I see them. I think I've spotted them. They're taking over that small town. There's no telling what they may do to those people if we try to stop them. Don't worry, Green Lantern. I've got an idea that should take care of everything. You just lead those galactic gangsters to Cape Canaveral, and I'll do the rest. Will do, Superman. Causing trouble, the Martians try to take over the Earth. But the heroes trick them into boarding a rocket, which has its controls locked straight from Mars. Brace yourselves. We're ready for the takeoff. We're free at last! Now, to head back to the Glob Galaxy and destroy the worm who put us in prison. What do you mean? The controls are jammed. That's impossible. Forget it, Omo. Looks like you three fell right into our little trap. This rocket is computer-controlled, and it's heading back to Mars, where you came from. No, not the prison. You can't do that to us. Wanna bet? We'll see to it they do not escape again. We'd appreciate it. They may be three small-time crooks to you, but they've been a giant pain in the neck to the super friends. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we've got an alien prison break. 
all to do in seven minutes. Aliens break free, heroes find out about them, catch them, send them back. <sighs> so we uh, start off with an earthquake in Metropolis, and this is, uh, we have this extra voice telling us what we're seeing. I figured it out it was an earthquake almost immediately, but we needed this guy to tell me that it's an earthquake! I guess that's for the benefit of uh, little kids who are watching and may not necessarily know what an earthquake is, so I'll forgive it, even if it is annoying. So here are Superman and Green Lantern, and apparently Green Lantern is giving Superman orders in his city. You know, this is Superman City, shouldn't, uh... Superman be uh, telling Green Lantern what to do? Just saying. Now here comes a big chunk of the Daily Planet building that Superman catches and easily puts back. The, the nice image there of Superman just pushing the street back together and ending the quake. He calls it uh, giving Mother Nature a super strength hug. Which, okay, not necessarily what I'd call it, but it does calm her down. Not sure how just pushing the street back together stops an earthquake, but it seems to work there. And the street is good at new. So Green Lantern is so pleased for himself with himself that he wants to apply him off, but that's when the Justice League alert goes off, informing him of a, of a prison break on Mars. Well done, Superman. I think we owe ourselves a rest after that rescue. Looks like you spoke too soon, Green Lantern. It's the Justice League emergency alert. Batman to Superman. We've just received word from the galactic prison on the surface of Mars. Seems three alien space criminals hijacked a NASA probe and are headed back to Earth. Apparently, Mars is the home to a huge uh, intergalactic prison, and three aliens jailbreak. And and they hop the NASA Mars probe, and they land in the water. And these NASA security officers or scientists, whatever they are, they're awfully calm about finding these bug-like aliens in a space probe. It's just something like this happens all the time. Now, these guys don't know, at least the aliens, that's who I'm referring to, don't know who the super friends are and vice versa. What happens next is pretty interesting if you're paying attention. We hear the aliens speak English, but Green Lantern asks Superman what they said. So, the aliens speaking English is for the viewer's benefit, because Superman tells the Green Lantern that he doesn't know what they said, so it's clear that the aliens are speaking in a different language other than English, so I thought that was a really cool uh, nod. You know, when you watch something like with a lot of aliens, like, like, for instance, when you watch Superman the movie, yeah, they're all speaking English because we speak English. The movie is filmed in English. I mean, I mean, first off, there's no Kryptonian language, at least not in 1978, but uh, why would you make your audience read subtitles for, for so long? You just have them speak English so we can understand them. In your mind, you're supposed to know that they're, spe- that they're speaking their language. I hope that makes sense, because it does to me. And it's not an issue because they're all talking to each other. They're not talking to anybody on, uh, on, another, on another planet. So basically what I'm saying is, it's a nice little device to show that these aliens and the superheroes are speaking a different language, even though we all hear them speaking in English. So, I guess that's that. So, Green Lantern anchors one of the aliens, another, which looks like a big ape, is uh, eating the ship, because the scientists brought the space probe up onto a boat. And Actually, it's an aircraft carrier, because these aliens steal three fighter jets, and they're gonna go to Cape Canaveral, and they inform this poor old guy sitting on his porch that they just want his city, and he just kind of runs away in fear, which is probably what any of us would do faced in a similar situation. I and mean, it's really not much of a city, just a small town. And Green Lantern treat, is gonna treat this as a hostage situation, but Superman has a plan, and the aliens are trying to uh, control the population when Green Lantern shows up, and he is defenseless against one of the aliens because uh, they have yellow vision beams. So Superman shows up at the uh, Canaveral rocket base and asks for the latest and fastest rocket. Why couldn't the rocket just be fast? Why did it have to be the latest? And if Superman just built it himself, why did he need to ask this tech anyway? Although it didn't matter because the uh, guy at the base said they just sent their latest and fastest uh, 
rocket ship to Mars, so there's nothing available for Superman to use, and I kind of like the tech pushing back on Superman's request a little bit. Superman, what are you doing here? There isn't time for questions. I've got to have your latest, fastest rocket. Sorry, Superman, but we just fired our only rocket to Mars. It'll take months to build another. In that case, I've got no choice but to build it myself. I mean, usually people just kind of roll over and put their paws in the air and play dead for him when he demands something and... And that was jarring, too. That Superman just kind of shows up and demands this rocket. No time for questions. Just give me your rocket ship. You would expect Superman to be a little bit more polite about something like this. Especially when he's asking for billions of dollars worth of equipment. So Green Lantern has uh, the aliens chasing him. And apparently this leads to Superman's plan. And the rockets are just what the aliens need. And Superman's rocket is launched into space. And they're going to another galaxy to destroy those that imprisoned them. But the uh, controls of the ship are jammed, and apparently this was Superman's plan all along. And he informs them over the uh, radio that, yeah, it's programmed to take them back to Mars. Which, again, begs the question why Superman needed the latest and fastest rocket to get them back to Mars. Couldn't the uh, latest NASA junk box have just done the same thing? I guess Superman wanted to get get them there before they starved, but whatever. So, that's that episode. Very simple. Aliens escape, aliens cause trouble, aliens defeated. I do like seeing Superman outsmart the villains, which is even more necessary, because I don't think he's really allowed to punch anything in this incarnation of the show. So, let's move on to Wanted House. And our synopsis for this is as follows. A pair of boys go into a, go into a supposedly haunted mansion outside of Gotham City. What did I tell you, Chuck? The cemetery is Creepsville. Oh, it's not so scary. Hey, look, guys. It's the old Brimstone Mansion. I heard it's haunted. You're so gullible, Mike. There's no such thing as a haunted house. Oh, yeah? Well, if you're so brave, I dare you to spend 15 minutes in the place. I don't need to prove anything to you. What's the matter, Chuck? You chicken? I'm no chicken. Come on, Joey. We'll show them. The Wonder Twins learn of the situation and go after them. What's the trouble? Uh, our friends Chuck and Joey went into that haunted house hours ago, and they haven't come out. Don't worry. We'll go in and get them. We will? Oh, uh, I mean, uh, oh, sure we will. Uh, come on, Jaina. Uh, I think we'd better knock. They get captured by the cemetery caretaker, but all are eventually freed by Batman and Robin. Remind me not to take any more dares, Joey. I'd rather be a chicken than a fool any day. <laughs> Sam! It's a ghost! Give it up, Gleek. You can't scare me so easily. Yay! There's nothing there. <laughs> Alright, so, remember how a few episodes I postulated that Super Friends may not have the rights to use Gotham City? Well, maybe you can throw that out the window now, because here they are, referencing Gotham City. But, and there's a but here, I wonder if that has something to do with the fact that the uh, New Adventures of Batman, the Filmation cartoon, wasn't producing any new content at this time, 1980? So maybe it's possible Hanna-Barbera picked up additional Batman rights? I haven't really found anything to confirm or deny that, but there it is. And here are a bunch of uh, kids in a cemetery, and one thinks it's creepy, and yeah, it looks kind of creepy. The art is very foreboding, it's it's night, it's dark, you know. Basically how you would expect Gotham City to look, but they're in this old cemetery. It looks like it could be an old family cemetery on private property. It's not a very well-kept cemetery, I'll say that. And then there's a, a, a decrepit old mansion that looks very fitting in this environment. So one teenager, Mike, thinks it's haunted, and Chuck 
the blonde-haired one, isn't very eager to go in either, but he has to do it to prove that he's not chicken because he's uh, he's talking all kinds of crap. So typical Dean's, you know, has to prove how manly he is, so he's going into uh, the haunted house. So this mansion is ancient, and the walls are busted up, there are holes in the floor, and uh, a bat comes at the kids, and some kind of huge shadow appears over the over the wall that the kids are kind of up against. So, so yeah, something is going wrong in this uh, hidden mansion in Gotham City. Also, in the cemetery here, something you don't see every day, or ever, Jaina has turned into a camel, and Zan and Lika are riding her, which... Maybe this is not so abnormal, because this was quite a few years ago now, when I worked sports at a newspaper in upstate New York. There was one night when one of the production guys came up from the pre-press area in the press room and said that there was a guy walking a llama on the street. Now, obviously, most of us, you know, thought the guy was drunk and didn't pay any attention to him, but, yeah. I kid you not, there was, when I went home that night about 1 or one one thirty in the morning. Yeah, there was a guy walking a llama on the city streets. So the guy wasn't as uh, drunk as we all thought. But here we are. I was struck by the fact that Zan and Gleek were riding a camel. And then Zan, because he can never keep his mouth shut, makes an ill-advised quip about how great it is not having to walk. And Jaina does not appreciate it. So the twins find out about Chuck and Joey in the haunted house. And Zan doesn't seem too enthused, but he goes anyway. And he's still hesitant as he knocks on the door. And now here's a picture of an old woman on the wall, and it opens up, and Gleek is taken through it. Zan disappears behind a bookcase. And, you know, my first indication of wonder if the old woman was behind it, because we hadn't seen uh, anybody inside the house yet other than the shadow that the kids ran into. And now Jaina is scared by the same shadow that scared the teens. So, hmm, maybe something's going on here. So, Zan and Gleek are stuck under some hay, and they find Chuck and Joey. And then we got an old man here who looks a lot like uh, Ebenezer Scrooge with his suit and uh, gray hair. He even has the uh, the mutton chops. But actually, now that I think about it, he looks more like that guy from uh, Harry from the Harry Potter movies. The old librarian with the cat. I don't remember what his name is, but, you know, old and scraggly. And uh, maybe he reminds me more of that than Ebenezer Scrooge. Ebenezer Scrooge jumped out at me when I saw it when I watched the episode. So, and old man Holmes here is the caretaker of this old house and the uh, cemetery. Zan and Jaina turn into a kangaroo in a frozen bowling ball, which does nothing except get Zan trapped. And a mouse takes uh, Zan's communicator, preventing him uh, from calling Batman and Robin. Kangaroo Jaina is uh, caged up as well. Then uh, the caretaker is going to send a bunch of bugs at the kids, and they're freaking out. And now I have a little treat for you, my friends. We're not your friends. Of course not. I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to them. Oh no! This is when Batman and Robin show up just in time to save the day. Because apparently Gleek got away and uh, managed to tell Batman and Robin what happened. I guess I should have been paying better attention. I didn't make a note of it, but maybe Gleek went through the door during the uh, while the bowling ball was bouncing around the room. Or Xana the bowling ball was bouncing around the room. Who can tell? As you look at the animation here, I really like the way Batman's symbol looks in this episode. Large and in charge were on his chest there. So apparently Batman carries a freeze ray just for the, the occasion and uh, freezes Holmes in his place. And uh, here we go. Jane is an elephant and Zan is water. And she drinks him, stores him in her trunk, spits him out, and that's how Zan chases away the bugs. Yeah, who could imagine snorting their sibling? So for our ending, Gleek shows up as a ghost to scare the twins. I and I thought this was Gleek all along as the ending gag always seems to involve everybody's favorite space monkey. Or at least favorite space monkey. And this time is no different. He scares Jaina, but Zan kind of chides her because he thinks Gleek is under the uh, sheet. But he pulls the sheet away and there's nothing. And 
we scroll up and we find Gleek in the tree controlling the ghost with a fishing pole. So that wasn't so bad, you know. If there's a moral to it, it uh, has something to do with teens uh, doing scary stuff because they need to prove how manly they are, how brave they are to their peers. Peer pressure is involved here. You know, you don't have to do things just to look tough. So, we're going to move on to our final story for this week's episode. The Incredible Crude Oil Monster. And our synopsis is as follows. When an experiment to clean up an oil spill goes terribly wrong, it creates an oil monster. Aquaman, Hawkman, and Hawkgirl must stop the creature before he feeds in too much oil and becomes unstoppable. This is all the laundry soap I have, super friends. Good. This detergent dissolves grease and oil. It may be just what we need to dissolve that oil monster. I just hope it'll be enough. With a little help from some detergent, the heroes clean up the situation. And that pun was very definitely intended, even though the homepage says that it wasn't. Nice work, Hawkman. For a minute there, I didn't think it was going to work. Nothing to worry about, Aquaman. The old soap trick always cleans up the bad guys. So we're starting off with an oil spill off the coast of Alaska. And the crew is trying to clean up the spill by using some kind of mechanical device and maybe setting off some kind of rays. Maybe you're trying to burn the oil away, or I don't know. But whatever this machine is, maybe it's got some kind of radiation or something. It falls on the water and creates an oil monster, because of course it does. So being in the water, Aquaman is on the scene, and they try to net the monster with a harpoon. No effect. And the oil monster, which must be pretty slippery, gets a hold of the captain. So Aquaman is now going to handle the monster by having a bunch of fish surround it. Apparently the fish weren't very helpful, as one swat with the oil monster's hand, and the fish are on their way. And Aquaman fights the monster a little bit more, gets thrown back in the water again, and he's so soaked by the uh, monster and the oil that he's kind of sinking like a stone. And you don't always see Aquaman needing to get saved, but here are a couple of dolphins that they just pull Aquaman up and send him straight to the surface and onto the boat. And this is when Hawkman and Hawkgirl enter the story who apparently did not see the oil monster. But the captain did, and the oil monster is at the, is at the coast, and now it approaches the Alaska oil pipeline. And I'm guessing that it's drawn to the oil in the pipeline, and these two uh, workers are trying to hide in a shed. Kind of reminds me of a time, uh, again, at the same newspaper upstate, when I was covering a high school football game, and we had a rain delay because it was just pouring and uh, soaking uh, poorly maintained field. As I recall, the game was postponed to a different day at that point. But we were all crammed into this little shed to protect ourselves from the rain. That's kind of what this reminds me of here. So Aquaman grabs a suction pump and tries to suck up the monster, but that doesn't work. So it does make the monster grow larger, probably because it's joining up with other oil. So he shoots some oil at the hawks, and they're incapacitated, and the monster tried to eat them. Literally, it, the monster kind of just threw itself in, into its mouth, and down they went. And they're all oiled up, and they can't even flap their wings. You know, imagine the image of, like, a pelican or something caught in an oil spill. The oil weighs on them so heavily that they can't flap their wings. The same thing is happening to Hawkman and Hawkgirl here. Attempting to find a Hawkman and Hawkgirl, Aquaman is using his aquatic telepathy, like radar. I don't think that's how telepathy works, which, this is the kind of thing that'll earn me some chiding from Dave McElvenny. Actually, in a letter that you guys haven't heard yet, but that I've read, he chides me on, uh, commenting on how something that's not real I said, uh, well, basically what happened is in one of the episodes of Superman the movie, I said Richard Donner didn't understand how time travel works. And you'll hear in a few episodes, they, they gave me hell about it. And so I guess I shouldn't really say that's how, uh, not how telepathy works, because telepathy doesn't actually work. But I don't imagine you can send out telepathic call like radar. I don't think your telepathic waves will be reflected back. That's how radar works. It sets out a wave and the object sends 
Oh, that's sonar. Well, anyway, radar. He's using his radar, or sonar, one of the two. He says radar on the episode, but it's more like sonar, which you send the ray out and reflects it back, so you know how far away it is. Maybe I'm getting my sensors mixed up. Anyway, I still can't reconcile using telepathy as radar, unless he's trying to sense their minds. So now the monster is sludging away and washing off Hawkman Hawkgirl with a big hose gives Hawkman an idea. And they go shopping, because the idea is to get laundry detergent to dissolve the monster. After all, it works so well on your shirts and hard-to-lift stains. But this is no shirt, and that's one hell of an oil stain. And now the monster is at the waterfront breaking into storage tanks and wreaking a bunch of havoc. And a car is caught in the oil slick, and Aquaman just shows up on a bulldozer and pushes the car off off the oil slick. I'm not sure that would have worked that way. The bulldozer probably would have just taken the car apart. But nope, the car stays whole and just kind of Aquaman just pushes it to the side. So they're going to create a little laundry as Aquaman plays bait while the Hawks drop the laundry soap on the monster and it melts. So this episode is brought to you by Tide Pods, not just for eating. And apparently I had a lot to say about that episode. I actually had a lot to say about more about these episodes than I really expected to. That, however, does not make them good episodes. So next time... I'm going to go into weeks five and six of the 1980 Super Friends season. If you want to send us some feedback, it's always welcome. Manascreen at gmail.com. You can join the conversation over at the Facebook group. Just put Manascreen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Manascreencast. So, till next time, folks. We're all on the same team. Good night. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Email to this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.